Hi there, and welcome to Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. My name is Jeremy Silver, and I'm the chair of the Catapult Network. In this series, I'll be talking with some of the UK's top industrial and academic leaders, business people and parliamentarians to get their views on innovation. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Lord Robert Mayer, Emeritus Professor of Civil Engineering at Cambridge University and a member of the House of Lords. Prior to his appointment in 1998 to a chair at Cambridge where he was Head of Civil Engineering, he worked in industry for 27 years, throughout which time he maintained and developed close links with the academic world. Lord Mayor has a distinguished civil engineering career, having specialised in underground construction, leading numerous projects in the UK and worldwide. His international projects have included railway tunnels in the cities of Amsterdam, Barcelona, Bologna, Florence, Rome, Singapore and Warsaw, and motorway tunnels in Turkey. In the UK, he's been closely involved with the design and construction of the Jubilee Line extension of the London Underground, and with the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, now known as HS1, Crossrail and HS2. Lord Mayor has also achieved many awards in his academic career, and he was awarded a CBE in the 2010 New Year's Honours List and appointed a crossbencher in the House of Lords in 2015. He's a founder of the Centre for Smart Infrastructure and Construction at Cambridge, an innovation and knowledge centre funded by EPSRC, Innovate UK and Industry to a value to date totalling £22 million. And as a member of the House of Lords Select Committee on Science and Technology, he recently took part in their inquiry into how catapults can better contribute to the UK's R&D roadmap. Lord Mayor, it's a real pleasure to welcome you uh, to the Catapult Network podcast. Thank you very much. So let's dive straight in and let me ask you a, a general question. I think it's a, it's a widely held preconception that the UK is often seen as being great at invention and not quite so good at innovation. And as we emerge from Brexit and begin to recover from the pandemic, what's your sense of the current strengths and weaknesses in the UK's innovation ecosystem? Well, I think it's improving. I should say that straight away. You're absolutely right that there is a, a long history of British science and technology being at the forefront at the research level. The UK punches well above its weight, probably second only to the US in terms of, of all of the metrics of, for science and technology. And yet the commercialization of our you know, very, very world-leading research is, we're not nearly as high in the world rankings. There are all sorts of reasons for this that, uh, you know, that people debate uh, endlessly, but there is something that hasn't worked so well for the UK in terms of, of taking the latest research, the latest innovations through to commercialization. Why do you think that is actually? Because I mean, we've talked about this, it's almost a sort of a, a chestnut now of the UK innovation scene that we say this about ourselves. Uh, it is, I mean, people talk a lot about risk, um, that by and large, Again, I think this is improving, I should emphasize, but I think there has been, our country, our our backers are more risk averse than in the US and indeed in in other countries as well. Being risk averse doesn't sit well with innovation because of course, by its very definition, innovation carries uncertainty and carries risk. If it pays off, it's wonderful. 
but it doesn't always pay off, of course. You've mentioned there the US and, and the way that the US approaches these things, and you've had extraordinary experience around the world. That the list of, of, of cities in which you've created tunnels of one sort or another is, is an extraordinary list. And I'm sure that there are plenty of other countries as well that you've been involved with. I mean, when you look at the UK compared with the rest of the world, you know, I mean, what do you think we should be learning from the way that other countries approach innovation? I think it, in the end, comes down to to government's willingness to back innovation. And by that, I mean also backing potential losers as potential winners. And that's a hard call. I mean, I understand that. It's a hard call. People who are handling the purse strings, whether they be private sector investors or whether they be the treasury, uh, effectively, are naturally wanting to put their money where there's more likely to be a success. And, And of course, that's right. But it is interesting to see when you look at some of the stories in the US that I hear from my my colleagues at MIT and Stanford, that um, venture capitalists will be perfectly prepared to back 10 new ventures, and they know that eight of them will fail. You don't see that so much in the UK. Is it a failure of government? Or is it, is it about a private investor confidence? I mean, where's the, or is it that we need to do a better job of matching the two? I think it's a better job of matching the two. Because I think, I think government absolutely understands that we'll probably come onto this subject, but uh, the, the government has very much, to everyone's great pleasure, has committed to a, a, a serious increase in R&D funding. There's some temporary blips in that at the moment, but nevertheless, they are planning to to get up to 2.4% of GDP by um, 2027 at the latest. But they recognize that, that only a third of that funding is going to be government funding. Two thirds of it is going to be private sector funding. So that, that's the sort of ratio that, that government thinks of and, and is planning with. The one third government, the two thirds private sector. So it's clear that the government absolutely absolutely needs private sector investment to really realise that ambition. And that, I think, is where the catapults come in. Obviously, the the catapults are still a relatively young set of institutions, with one or two exceptions within the manufacturing space who have been around for longer. But but as as a sort of concept, we're still really getting comfortable with catapults. I think, finally, and your inquiries, recommendations, uh, in a sense, put the seal on this, along with, with what Bayes had to say subsequently. It feels as if there's a recognition that catapults have got a significant role to play here. Was, was there something that you found or you discovered about the way the catapult work uh, during the course of the inquiry that have sort of increased your confidence around the use of catapults in this, in this objective? I think our inquiry certainly demonstrated to all members of, of the select committee the fantastic uh, variety of the nine catapults. It was an eye-opener to see the, the huge coverage of the major technology subjects, really, across the, the whole country, the different subject areas. I think probably most people were familiar with the high-value manufacturing. And as you just said, of course, there, there was a, a, a very good history behind uh, high-value manufacturing anyway, prior to the catapults. And, uh, and of course, the high value manufacturing catapult has, has built on that in a most impressive way. But that probably was the area w- which, if you like, the, the general public were more familiar with, with the catapults, the sort of manufacturing aspects. But of course, there are lots of, lots of other areas evidenced by the other 
eight catapults. I think we also understood a lot more about what the current barriers are. There are rules that govern the funding for innovation set by the government, which do create barriers to collaboration between catapults, universities and industrial partners. And we, we really probed those barriers. And I think the government understood those barriers and that might, we hope, will improve the situation. Is that, um, I mean, do you see that as being a key really to unlocking investor confidence from the private sector? In a sense, the relationship between collaboration in programs and projects of, of research and development and the, the kind of follow-on investment that that hopefully triggers certainly looks like a model that we should encourage. But I, I wonder whether you see it in quite that way or whether the, you know, how you, what you see is the nature of that collaboration in relation to trying to drive private investment. I think there's a question of lack of visibility of the catapults. And, and that's not a criticism of the catapults because they are having to work clearly within the resources made available to them. But it was, it was pretty clear to us that, that, that there, are, there are still large numbers of, of uh, UK companies, particularly SMEs, that barely know about the catapults. If they do know about them, they're not very accessible to them because your average SME has so many other things to be thinking and, and, and worrying about. So I think there's a kind of visibility and communications issue that we identified. You know, one of our strong recommendations to the government was to communicate much better about the catapults, to, to assist in selling the message of this very powerful network that does exist and could do so much more. There is a sort of view that traditionally, perhaps, that where catapults have been successful, it's tended to be with, in collaboration with larger companies Indeed. Uh, in traditional sectors, and that it's been more challenging to see what the model is to engage with SMEs. What's your thought about, I mean, how do we create better collaboration in that sector? I think several of our witnesses, in response to that point, really talked about bandwidth, that each catapult only has a, a certain amount of resources, a certain amount of people to really um, engage with large numbers of, of smaller industries in particular is a big challenge. And it, and it involves a lot, of, a lot of work, a lot of people, and ultimately more resources. And that was something that, that came across quite clearly, that you can only do so much as a catapult. Obviously, one of the goals there is to try and scale up those SMEs and trying to create a, a larger number of mid-sized companies is that something that you think the catapults could, could help to do? Is that part of the objective, do you think, in, in work with SMEs? I think indeed that is. Going back, I think, almost to your first question, there is the interesting UK issue about companies reach a certain side, I mean, certain size, I mean, if they're successful, and then all too often they're sold on, most often to Americans. Now, that I don't think is something that the catapults can particularly much about that's a, a deeper problem but it, it is nevertheless very true but what catapults can do is create more of those candidates can create more of those success stories yeah i mean i certainly agree with you as, as my my background as an entrepreneur i have to say i've, I've helped a, a number of companies grow and i have to say i've also helped them sell to american technology companies and uh, i would much rather see those those companies and those teams of people remain in the UK and remain focused on, on things that have benefit the UK. 
but it is extremely challenging. And in fact, the, you know, the challenge, I think, is as much in the investment community as it is in the companies themselves. Uh, yes. the, the, the sense is that when you get to a certain size and a potential acquirer comes along, if you're a UK investor, you, you leap at the first sniff of an acquisition. We've had a lot of explorations in the UK over the last few years around patient capital, around that notion of of, of trying to provide longevity of investment, but we still don't seem to have got there. Do you have thoughts about what we might do in that regard to, to try and help investors stay in for longer? Patient capital, as you say, is crucial here. Our select committee a few years ago did a report on, on the life sciences industrial strategy and finance and commercialization played quite a big part in, in our questions. I don't know whether you would agree with this, Jeremy, probably you wouldn't, but Quite a few witnesses said the problem with a lot of the UK finance people is their lack of understanding of science and technology. And we heard, we heard some, and I know that's not always true, but uh, I hasten to add that. But we, we did hear very compelling evidence that in America, the finance people who are backing new ventures are more often than not extremely knowledgeable in science and technology and can actually understand and identify with it and talk to the people and, and get, get a real feeling as to where it's going. That is not so clear in the UK. It's a very interesting question. I, I think um, certainly the experience that we've had in the digital catapult, which is the catapult that I'm the, the CEO of, we work very closely with the private investment community. And uh, I think we do a fair share of education there, as well as of introducing them to companies and creating the relationships there. I wonder if there aren't other barriers as well. You know, very often we see private investment going towards companies that can move rapidly uh, in the consumer space or in services. And it's really on the more traditional areas of, in, of industrial manufacturing and the longer, slower product life cycle type uh, sectors, where we see less investment from the, from the venture capital community. The focus on disruption, as opposed to reinforcement or, or transformation of existing sectors is dichotomy there that there's a there's disruption is more appealing perhaps to investors than digital transformation perhaps perhaps too specific for for this conversation but i, I it's an interesting thought isn't it that our investment community seems to respond better to fast moving perhaps more fashionable sectors than they do to some of our more traditional ones i mean i don't know if, if that makes sense to you it does make sense it does make sense. I mean, I come, in a sense, from, from a very traditional engineering sector, arguably the, the, the least innovative. It's something that I feel very strongly about, and, and it's something I've been working hard to try and change. But the construction sector is, on the whole, rather traditional and rather resistant serious innovation. And it's interesting to note, you mentioned some of those projects that I've been involved with around the world, that um, not one of those projects is being built by British contractors. So that you know, overseas in sometimes very harsh environments, very different environments, very difficult commercial environments, you see Italian contractors, German contractors, French contractors, Spanish contractors, all out there. And you don't see any British contractors. So that's saying something, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And is that a cultural challenge for us then, do you think? It could be a cultural challenge. If you go back, of course, um, quite a number of decades, that was less of the case, but that was partly to do with the legacy of the British Empire, I guess. So you did see British contractors overseas more in their territories that they were felt more familiar about, which probably speaks to your point about culture. They felt more comfortable 
in either what was still a British colony or fairly recently had ceased to be one, but still had a kind of UK culture. But I think it's more than culture. I think it's back to our points about risk. It's back to that, you know, that uh, you, you get some remarkable projects taking place, you know, very, very large sums of money in, in far-flung parts of the world with Spanish, Italian, German, French contractors recognising that it's high risk, but also recognising it's high reward if it works well. Very interesting. Well, that, there is a huge challenge to us there, I suspect, to try and stimulate and to, to provide that kind of confidence to people. And, and I suppose to, to gradually adjust the risk profile. I don't think that risk is something you can suddenly change people's appetite for very, very quickly overnight, is it? I, I mean, do you have thoughts about how we approach that sense of tackling risk or de-risking to some extent? I think it's a really interesting challenge. I mean, we will perhaps have time to talk about skills in a minute or two. But I think, I think one of the uh, high priorities really of, of our skills programme of educating our technicians and our scientists, our engineers, and I, I, I emphasise technicians, I think, are, are becoming and should become more and more important if we're really going to realise a lot of the ambitions that we have as a country for science and technology. But those young people need to be skilled in, obviously, in digital. Digital skills are, are becoming ever more important. But also, I think they need to understand a lot more about risk profiles, your average science technology graduate isn't well-versed in, in all of the, the business side of entrepreneurism and all the rest. It's, it's very interesting. I don't think that I've heard a conversation that ends up linking our risk appetite with the skills gap, actually. But I think it's a really interesting point that if, you, if we create and we want it and we need a new generation of newly skilled technicians, engineers, workforce, that part of what we want them to also have is an appetite for entrepreneurship and for taking risk. Do you agree? I do agree, yes. I mean, one of my colleagues in Cambridge uh, in, in, the, in the life sciences feels very strongly that they, in their graduate programmes for life sciences, they actually have a, a fairly substantial part of the graduate programme that they all have to undergo with the business school, where they are, are actually exposed to the pitfalls and difficulties of entrepreneurism. And, and, and he, he believes very strongly that's a, absolutely essential now for your rounded scientist, technician, technologist, engineer. You know, if they're going to really thrive, they need to understand all those things. So it does feel as if the skills gap is actually growing and that we're, we're actually facing a, a, a growing problem, digital skills in particular, but it, it clearly yes. this, is, this goes beyond that. Do you think that we need to make some radical change to the way that we think about skills in order to address that skills gap? I think a radical change is the need to reinforce the importance of, of young people other than graduates, other than university trained graduates. So in other words, there is a huge, huge need for, for technicians at all level, of all sorts. Young men and women who, who leave school and for one reason or another don't feel suited to pursuing a university route, have got enormous potential. And, and we really have undervalued and, and really under-resourced our further education colleges up and down the country. And I think that's something that was identified in the Auger report 
a few few years ago, which which I thought was really excellent in saying that there is this real need if we're going to thrive as a nation on the science and technology front, then we really need to pay much more attention to the skills program for our uh, young people, the 50% who do not go to university. And are we getting it right at the moment, do you think? Uh, there's been quite a lot of controversy around the apprenticeship scheme, for example. We may not be getting it right in, this, in some of the detail, but I think, I think the government does recognise this is a really you know, hugely important area. And uh, I'm sure it is. You look to Germany, I mean, you'll know this well, I'm sure many of us do, but it's, uh, it's astonishing that the, I don't have the exact figures to quote to you, but the proportion of young people between the ages of 20 and 30 who are working one way or another in the science and technology sphere is very much higher than it is in the UK. And that's because they have a whole range of, of, of processes. So if you're, if you're academically gifted, you go to the good universities. If you're not academically gifted, but nevertheless, you want a career in this, in this world, you become an apprentice and you get very well trained and the important point is there's no stigma in Germany about an apprenticeship. There is stigma in this country still. So your average parent, if their child says, I don't, I don't want to go to university, I prefer to become an apprentice, your average parent very often is disappointed by that. Not in Germany. Let's, let's just change tack a little bit and think about um, one of the other big strands of current government thinking, which is about levelling up. And uh, a, a much used phrase and not one that is always one that everyone entirely understands or, or necessarily has the same definition of. When you think in broad terms of, 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 of levelling up and what you understand of it, uh, what do you think it, it needs to look like? What should the strategy be now, do you think? The whole question of regional development, you know, we can call it levelling up, call it regional development. We certainly recognised in our inquiry short inquiry on the catapults, that the need to broaden access to the government's Strength in Places Fund. The Strength in Places Fund is a good uh, concept, but at the moment it's, we felt that there was much more potential for catapults all around the country, wherever they are based. Uh, and of course they are spread right across the country, as you know, to be able to, to engage with a local industry with a local uh, university and to do much more to engage with the strength in places fund and that that's something we felt is something the catapults could do a lot more for and to actually assist the government in its leveling up campaign and at the moment it struck us that's not not happening to a great degree in in many cases catapults are again constrained by the resources but constrained by particular companies they are uh, engaging with in terms of a, of a sort of organized leveling up agenda and the strength in places fund uh, success story, then there's a lot more the catapults could be doing to, to, to advance the government's leveling up program. And what about uh, other sort of regional organizations, combined authorities, LEPs, as well as universities? Do you have a sense of, of, of how we should be seeing collaboration working between those sorts of institutions and the catapult network? I think all of the above is the answer to that question. Um, again, we're back to the resource question. I think the, it goes back to my point about visibility and, and communication too, that, that there needs to, to be 
a really concerted campaign to publicize all the, the potential of the catapults and all the things that local organizations, local universities, local companies can do with the support of, of a catapult. But that needs to be strengthened and publicized. And that small part of doing that is, of course, the purpose of this podcast, which is which is a great uh, a segue into uh, thinking a little bit more about some of the, these these questions. Just thinking more about that. I mean, you, you talk about wanting to raise the profile and talking about wanting to increase access to the catapults. In terms of really contributing to, to prosperity across the UK, do you think the catapults need to expand their role? Do, we, do, do catapults need to be doing more? Of, you know, I mean, how much of an answer can the catapults be? One of our strong recommendations was that we, we felt that there should be more flexibility in permitting public sector bodies, such as catapults, to have a larger share of collaborative R&D funding and, and, and to work more closely with universities. Now, I know that the prime purpose of the catapults is to bring industries together with research institutions like universities. A lot would be gained for the catapults if they were able to collaborate with universities on research projects, linking those with industries, essentially bringing the university researchers and the industry researchers together. But the catapults themselves also having the, the wherewithal and the ability to be able to take part in, in those collaborations, rather than just being facilitators. Now, I, I think the perception that we got a strong impression about was that the catapults was, were very often seen as simply being facilitators, sort of like a sort of introducing a university research department to a private sector organization, and then stepping back because they, that was it, as far as the catapult was concerned. Whereas if we felt that the rules were a bit too strict, I think government's taken this on board, actually. They were a bit too strict in saying what share of the, of the, of the available funding could actually also go to the catapults as well. I hope that the direction of travel is, is that there is more active engagement than simply brokering and convening, even though that's yes. really, really important. But I think the... The mechanics of the funding do have a, a major role to play in the degree to which that can happen. And it's very interesting because, of course, you know, the, the, the numbers of companies that are able to collaborate with universities at scale uh, is, is still relatively small. And the opportunity, I, I think, here you know, is, is to really try and grow that and to increase the, the nature of the collaboration and the way in which that, what the outcomes of that are, so that they're not just about long-term research, but they can have very immediate benefits in, in industry today and in the short term. But there does absolutely need to be a middle person in the, in the midst of that, because for the most part, universities tend to be thinking more long-term in terms of their research. Uh, and the clock speed of, of companies and universities can be quite different. Absolutely. And of course, there's, there's this whole um, you know, the TRL level, technology readiness level. You know, universities are in comfortable territory in, in the sort of naught to four, but the sort of blue skies, the new discoveries leading to journal publications, leading to you know, all sorts of plaudits on the university research side. And at the other end of the scale, eight, nine, 10, seven, eight, nine, 10, you have the companies who are, who are taking these things to market and you have the valley of death that everyone talks about. 
between about five and seven when nobody's doing anything. The universities don't feel it's their pitch. They don't really understand what to do. And, and the companies are uh, saying, well, it doesn't look very well developed to us. And so you get this problem. There's another point that I want to raise, which is the match funding requirements. In my experience uh, with, with SMEs, particularly with SMEs, it's, it's even quite difficult for some of the larger companies. But the requirement that the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, which is impressive, and, and it's, a, it's a very good initiative, but the requirements that, that an SME uh, has to partner with, a say, a university research department, but must match fund. You know, this is tough, tough for an SME. It's tough for them to engage with that kind of funding. I think you're absolutely right, and and obviously we've seen in the uh, in the last year during the course of the pandemic the ability of companies to do that, of course, has reduced, and we've seen some very positive, very sh- quick short-term responses. So Innovate UK did respond very quickly with some of its COVID uh, recovery funding programs. Do you think we need to do more research into actually the nature of innovation and what works? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think I think there are questions that are unanswered. Partly yes, in answer to your question. I think um, one of the things that really needs to be done is to try to get an assurance of long-term continuity. And I, I think that was a, a strong part of our recommendation too, that in our, our select committee report, we felt that catapults need an assurance of longer-term continuity, including longer-term certainty over funding, but also commitments not to be reviewed too often, which, uh, you know, <laughs> Clearly, clearly can be just enormously time-consuming and, and actually rather dispiriting as well. I mean, I think it's clear that the government recognises that catapults are a critical part of the UK's innovation ecosystem. I think the government recognises that, that some sort of longer-term certainty is needed. I'm sure you know this very well as a CEO of a catapult, that, that the, there's too much focus on what to do in the next couple of years. I totally agree. Coming to the end of, of the conversation, I, I want to just raise one other topic with you before we close. And, and the, really, this is in the light, I suppose, of uh, a huge kind of cultural shift in the last year or so, um, particularly during lockdown, and a, a real recognition of the importance of, of diversity and inclusion, of trying to close the gender gap, uh, the rise of of movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, here we are, um, self-confessedly, two middle-aged white men. What's your sense in the innovation space, particularly, of what organisations need to do to in- increase their inclusiveness, their, their diversity? I think they have to they have to work hard and fast to do much more in, on, on that topic. And there's no question about that. I mean, I think we see that in in all aspects here. We see it certainly in university departments, particularly in in science and engineering. There are some welcome uh, signs of much more diversity, certainly on the gender front. You know, I believe very strongly that there is a huge uh, need to to get to schools. And I believe it's too late getting to secondary schools. I, I really think there is a stronger and stronger case for for young scientists, young engineers, to go and talk to primary school children. Because I think by the time they're in their teens, you know, the, all the prejudices have, have, have sort of filtered through into the teenage children. And so whether they're a boy or a girl, they, they've got their sort of prejudices 
sort of baked in that engineering, for example, is a male thing, which of course is absolutely not the case. And we find that infusing nine, 10, 11 year old children is so important. So on the gender front, uh, I think that's incredibly important. I think things are moving in the right direction. We're certainly seeing a lot more young women applying to engineering courses. And when I, when I was an undergraduate, they were extremely rare. And I'm pleased to say that's no longer the case. And interestingly, in my world, in, in engineering, and, and in, in more specifically in civil engineering, when we change the name even of our courses to civil and environmental engineering, we saw almost instantly a big increase in applications from women. And that's so important. So in other words, the application of engineering to saving the planet in all sorts of different ways, particularly with the climate crisis upon us, is, is becoming much more recognizable and accessible to young women. And that, that's, that's all, all to the good. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, barriers still to climb, particularly on diversity across um, background. And that's all still you know, something that I think industry has to very much take a lead as that. University courses, industry, HR departments, there have to be some big changes in, in attitude. Lots of work still to do. Yeah. We're nearly at the end, and I want to ask you one last question. Not entirely serious, but what do you think about all the innovations that you've seen, you've come up with yourself, uh, and you've experienced across the planet in your career? Which is your favourite innovation? Gosh, I think there are quite a number of those. I suppose probably the biggest generic one has to be the, the power of digital. When I look back earlier in my career, you know, the, the way in which the construction projects were handled and, and uh, now you can get a tunneling machine boring under, under a city with precision control and uh, can be getting its course uh, controlled essentially by digital technologies. Um, things like that. I and mean, that's been the biggest single change across the whole world, whatever the subject in science and technology. It's the, it's the power of, of the internet, the power of sensing te technologies. That has to be the biggest single thing, but that's a bit of a, bit of a cheat because you were looking for something more specific, probably. But I think... Well, as the, as the CEO of the Digital Catapult, I have to say I'm delighted to hear you say that. But I, <laughs> but but if, I, and I, I promised that I didn't pay you to give, come up with that answer. <laughs> but if there's one, if there's one single, single phenomenon, let's put it that way, that has changed the whole face of technology, of science, of our whole lives, it's the Internet of Things and it's the uh, digital revolution. And certainly in my world, we now sensors uh, that can uh, detect change. Um, we can use satellite technology to, to do image comparisons. We can, we can see a, a small crack developing in a, in a structure from a satellite almost now. I mean, it's extraordinary, the technology. Well, now we're, we're venturing into territory, which is the subject of an entire podcast in its own right. So I think we'll have to stop there, but uh, Thank you so much, Lord Mayor, for your, your thoughts and for spending time with us this week. That's all for today's Supercharging Innovation podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us again for the next podcast episode and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. Other podcast distribution platforms are also available. Goodbye. Goodbye.